Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Penny Finer, COO and co-founder of Be Still and executive director of Kula for Karma. She recounts how her brother entering an inpatient drug rehab program forces her to confront her own addiction. More than 25 years drug-free, hear how her sobriety helps guide her personally and professionally. Please welcome Penny Finer. Welcome, Penny, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Yes, for sure. I had been challenged with a cocaine addiction, and I am about to celebrate 40 years clean and sober. I think coming to terms with my issue with Coke and my brother who had been admitted as an inpatient really was the motivation factor for me to take a look at what my relationship to drugs was and begin to do the work I needed to do to repair. Can you describe what your addiction looked like and how many years you were using? I started recreationally, like probably most people. I graduated from college in 1974. I was in the first class of women at Colgate University. Everybody in those days was, I shouldn't say everyone, but everyone I knew was indulging in and experimenting with marijuana and hash and quaaludes and cocaine. And so I was, you know, jumping on that bandwagon and doing like everyone else did. A little by little, back then was when freebase cocaine became popular. And when I tried that, I loved the feeling of being invincible and powerful and empowered. So I was part of a radical feminist group and a consciousness raising group for women. And we had loud voices at Colgate because there were a hundred of us and 3,000 men. Oh, well. <laughs> but we had to be kind of loud. Well, frankly, I think I was always dealing with a fair amount of anxiety. And the cocaine helped me feel, like I said, invincible kind of and sort of superwoman-ish. So as you were using, I'm assuming, post-college and working and trying to start your adult life, how long did that carry on and how did you manage to do both try to become an adult, have a professional career or start one, and also freebasing and using cocaine. I think the freebasing started a little bit after. I don't think I was freebasing when I was in college. I'm just trying to kind of backtrack and understand the timeline. I was always kind of an overachiever. My nickname growing up was Penny Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And I spent years trying to undo that moniker and move away from the pressure that I put on myself. There was 
a lot of pressure that I put on myself and that I received from my family to be smart one, to set an example, to thrive. The way I measured my capability and success was always pretty high. So that was in some ways a blessing because my bottom with using was also high. So can you describe the high in terms of the bar that you set for yourself? And then can you give us a clearer picture of what your bottom was like when you finally admitted that you needed to address this problem? Uh, the high that I set for myself was that I wasn't, I was kind of a weekend warrior. When things started to get out of control, I was a weekend warrior, but I was an every weekend warrior. I would be thinking during the week as Thursday approached about where I was going to go, how I was going to get the drugs, how long was my supply going to last, you know, everything, how much money was in my checking account. And that was all measured by how much, how fast, and where I was going to get the Coke. The thinking turns thinking pretty fast. <laughs> and then in terms of how did my bottom stay relatively high, I had some money that I had inherited from my grandparents. So I never was digging into every penny that I'd had in order to support my drug habit. I wasn't stealing. I was lying and cheating myself, but not to other people, essentially. You described your brother being the catalyst. And I think you made reference to the fact that he ended up in hospital or in a rehab program. So can you tell us about how it was that he ended up in rehab, but yet you then had to commit to getting sober? My brother, who's one of my favorite humans on earth, called me one day. He was living in Manhattan in Chelsea, and he was considering suicide. He was thinking about driving his car into the wall of the Lincoln Tunnel. And when I learned about that, I kind of recruited my parents, a friend whose boyfriend was a counselor at a drug and alcohol rehab in the city, and got some help. I knew that I needed to get him help and we needed to do an intervention with him. There was an inpatient program in Manhattan that he could get him enrolled in immediately. So we opted for that. So we got him to Regent Hospital, which was right over the Queensboro Bridge. We left him, my parents and I left him at the hospital. He checked in as an inpatient. They shared with us at that time that you know, we would not be able to visit him for, uh, I think it was about a week or so. And that in order for me to be able to visit him, I needed to be able to produce clean urines. My brother had shared with the people on the intake side that I also had some issues with cocaine. So he kind of ratted me out, <laughs> which was a great thing, ultimately. I was able to remain clean for the two weeks that I needed to be clean in order to produce the urines, I recognized during that time how hard it was and that I was really going to need some help as well. So I got started in an outpatient program at Regent Hospital while he was an inpatient. Did you ever have any relapses? No. Uh, amazing. That's kind of unusual. I think it is. I wanted so badly to give up the drugs and alcohol. And when I did get clean, I gave up everything. No substance. I turned to food now and again. For, you know. 
I ask this question of a lot of people who suffer from some type of obsessive behavior. And the question that I always wonder about is that the illness, whether it's drug addiction or alcoholism or anorexia or whatever, never really goes away. It's something that you have to understand and know how to avoid the minefields per se to not fall off the wagon or to not allow yourself to indulge. So do you still think about that after all these years or has that become very muted for you? Most of the time it's muted. There are times when it's not muted. Those times are, my husband is French and we travel to the south of France every summer. And when we're sitting among friends and family at the dinner table, you know, the discussion is around pairing which wine with which course and, you know, savoring and swishing in your mouth. The whole kind of culture around the beauty of the grape. And also I walk for like three, four or five hours sometimes through the countryside in France. And I go from the sea to the vineyards to a medieval village and back again. So it's kind of like imbibing in some ways without imbibing. And those times I get sometimes into a kind of poor me head, like I blew it and I wish that I hadn't. But that's pretty much the only time that I really feel like I want to use some sort of substance. I do have a managed propensity for biohacking feelings. Can you describe what that is? I don't like conflict. I don't like feeling angry and I don't like feeling upset. I don't do very well with sadness and grief. I lost both of my parents within a two-year period. My dad passed in 2017 and my mom 18 months, actually not even later in 2018 at the end of the year. And I felt this compelling need to move through grief and loss quicker than my mindset, my body, my soul was able to do that. And that was really hard for me to just sit with so much sadness, even with years and years and years now of a yoga practice, mindfulness practice, meditation, the notion of just being okay with feeling lousy has been challenging for me. So did that start to stir up the I guess it's the biochemical because you have this propensity and it's biological, this biological need to kind of numb the senses? It manifested more in a a way of wanting to run away from the feeling. And what that looked like is not picking up a substance, but kind of turning to a gratitude practice. I studied positive psychology and completed a positive psychology training and turning to some of the poetry and mantra and all kinds of harmless, if you will, tools, but nonetheless tools to take me out of feeling what I was feeling and into feeling some sort of relief. I'm so happy that it wasn't substance. You Sometimes it was, you know, a bag of blue corn chips and some guacamole, but much less harming in a sense. So you entered an outpatient program. How long did that last? And then what did your rehab look like post graduation from the clinic program? Uh, The outpatient program met initially twice a week for the first year. 
And there were 12 of us in this outpatient group. On the second year, we went from twice a week to once a week. And then after that, we went to once a month. And then after that, we stopped. During that sort of weaning period, I got involved with a 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, even though my drug of choice was an alcohol, but I felt like there was, around Jersey anyway, there was much more long-term sobriety in the Alcoholics Anonymous space than in the Narcotics Anonymous space. And there happened to be a really great meeting literally around the corner from my home. So I got involved. I took a service commitment of being treasurer of that meeting, really relied on the program and the 12 steps for a good, I would say maybe two, three years after the uh, outpatient program ended. And then from there, I found yoga and mindfulness and still once in a while we'll go to a meeting. And this is obviously many, many years later. There's a kind of, I describe it as a squirrely feeling. And when I get that squirrely feeling, I know I need a meeting and I go. You actually started out by saying that you experienced a lot of anxiety and the drugs kind of provided you the fuel to move past the anxieties. And then you talked about the inability uh, you recently experienced of not being able to sit with your grief, trying to find ways to kind of dampen those emotions. The paradox is really interesting because in a way, I'm curious to see what was the journey for you to be able to A, say that the anxiety has gotten better, but yet you're still not able to sit with your emotions? It's not so much about not being able to sit with the emotion as it is wanting to run from the intensity of the emotion, if that makes sense. I kind of got to this place with managing anxiety of knowing that anxiety and stress are going to be a part of my experience on a daily basis. I'm not surprised anymore. I use the tools that I have. I am a musician. I write music. I write chants. I sing to myself every morning as part of my morning practice. And oftentimes in the course of that practice, I call it time for tears. Whatever comes up, if there's tears, if there's sadness, if there's loss, if there's grief, I kind of almost like I allocate a 20 to 30 minute date with myself to allow that to happen and to process it, to recognize it, to sit with it, as we say. And then if it comes up later on in the day, I've gotten pretty good at compartmentalizing and coming back to it either in the evening or the following morning so that it doesn't kind of or take my life or my, my ability to function and do what I do. When you go back to the AA program and working the steps, what part of that process was challenging for you? Or more importantly, what part of that process was incredibly revealing to you? I think the first step admitting, you know, that I, I had a problem with drugs and alcohol is number one. And then making amends to the people that I had harmed. You know, I had so many wonderful friends who were kind of worried about me and would say, are you sure you're okay? That I was pretty high functioning. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'm okay. You know, that penny perfect person who lives in my DNA just didn't allow how effed up I was to be 
so transparent, you know? I convinced a lot of people that I was fine. Well, let's go back to Penny Perfect. I would imagine for someone who aspires to be perfect, and that's a terrible word, but that taking that first step to saying, I have a problem and admitting that is kind of shattering that image of perfection, both for you and for others. So was that part of the challenge for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. That was the first most challenging aspect of the 12 steps. I mean, it was, of course, admitting to myself and then to the people that I was closest to. Telling my best friend, Arlene, that I'm in trouble here. And it's interesting to me that even all these years later, in retrospect, the, the catalyst, the impetus for getting clean and making the changes I needed to make for me really happened out of love and caring for my brother. Had he not reached out for help and said, I need you to be there for me, I don't know how much longer it would have taken me. Hopefully, I would have gotten there sooner than later. I definitely was motivated initially by wanting to be there for him and come through for him. When you go back to that moment where you said to yourself that I have a problem and therefore I'm not perfect, was there a tiny part of you that was like, but yeah, but I know I, you know what I mean? Like that kind of ability that we have to kind of lie to ourselves in some way to be able to endure whatever challenge is directly in front of us. You know, I got to the place, Juliana, once or twice while I was actively using where I was, at that point I was freebasing. I would feel my heart racing and palpitations and feeling like really like things were not right. I was feeling sick. And rather than stopping altogether for a while until the following day or whatever, I just waited till the feeling passed and then did more. And that to me was like, whoa, when I really saw that motion in action and the compulsion and the inability to stop at that point, I realized that I was on the road to really being harming myself. That realization helped you from, you know, that kind of thing that we all do, which is a little bit of denial or a little bit of self-lying to, you know, to be able to face it. As you were going through and then I think you said that you were in AA for four years and then that was it. What profound changes were first as you got clean? I think the ability to start to show up for myself and experience feelings. I went back into therapy. I had been in therapy on and off during my young adult life. Still, it's an on and off kind of thing. All these years later, I'm about to be 70 in a few months. Actually, I think I just started to feel grounded and I liked what I felt. I liked not having the pressure of feeling as though I needed to be perfect and show up in a particular way that was really hurting me. When my brother did get, neither one of us ever relapsed. And when he got clean, he moved into my home in Jersey for a while so that he could move away from people, places, and things where he had been in the city. You know, we were kind of like the dynamic duo, you know? We really supported each other and took care of each other in a way that was very special and continues to fuel our friendship and our love for each other as siblings. I think that's an interesting point. I would imagine, just like as you said, 
your brother had to physically leave the city to kind of wean himself off the crowd of people. Did you have to do something similar? And then when you think about it, or better yet, in these 30 plus years, have you been able to reestablish any of those ties with the people who kind of were in that circle with you? One of the people that was in that circle was a man who I had a romantic uh, relationship with who at the time was married, and it was really pretty toxic. When I got clean, I told him that I could not see him anymore. I didn't want to see him anymore. And that if he ever had any real feelings for me, he would honor that. That was hard for me and it was really hard for him initially. But then he got it. I have not seen him in all these years and I don't need to, but we have reestablished a kind of long distance friendship. And then the other people that I was involved in at that point in my life, there weren't real friends. So did you find yourself beyond that sense of groundedness and showing up for yourself, most importantly, but for others, were there changes that were like I giving up a profession or I mean, were there some really dramatic changes beyond what you just described? Not in the sense of giving up a profession and doing a full 180, but with Kula for Karma and my relationship to yoga and men and women and adolescents in recovery, I started teaching in that recovery space, teaching yoga in the recovery space. And I saw firsthand that I could be an example of what it looks like when you do stop and put one foot in front of the other, little by little, letting go of, you know, Penny Perfect, letting go of the need to have control over everything, understanding that process is what makes up the juicy fabric of life. And in some ways, set an example and give hope to those people who were just kind of starting out in recovery that were meeting me and going, wow, she has 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or whatever it was at that point. I really treasure that and valued that. And it was one of those things that kind of kept things green for me. You mentioned Kula for Karma, so can you tell us what that is and what that was? Yes. Kula for Karma is a not-for-profit organization that I became involved with just about a year into Kula's existence, which started 15 years ago. Jerry Topfer, the founder and president of Kula, had applied for 501c3 certification, and the idea was to offer therapeutic yoga, mindfulness, meditation, and breath work to those folks who would not have access to the healing modality of yoga, if not for an organization like Kula. And in those days, we were working in hospitals, in drug and alcohol rehabs. We were working at centers for at-risk youth. If there was a population that felt like the practice would be beneficial for their healing, we would go there. In those days, we received quite a bit of grant funding. We had programs in Manhattan, which you know about because you were one of our program directors. Yes. I'll never forget when I found you, I was so excited. I was like, <laughs> my God, how did that happen? We landed together. Yes. It was just sort of serendipitous and wonderful. And then little by little over time, we, you know, we kind of pushed the rock up the mountain and got all of these 
hospitals on board with the programs that we were offering. Some of the hospitals started integrating mindfulness and therapeutic yoga into what they offered their staff and their patients on their own and and didn't need to outsource us anymore. And then we recognized that where we really belong is in the mental health trauma and addiction space. And in the last, I would say, probably five or six years, we've pivoted to, to serve and cultivate programming in those areas. I know that you have a new venture that you guys have started. Can you tell us what the difference is between Kula for Karma and the new venture that you've just started recently? Jerry and I recognized we really needed to develop a succession plan and try to do something that would allow our baby to be sustainable over time. So we founded a company called Be Still, and Be Still offers brain breaks and wellness webinars. We call them brain breaks, which are essentially 15-minute meditation sessions in the corporate space. So we're working with some rather large companies, Ralph Lauren, Steve Madden, a few accounting firms in Manhattan, and a couple of companies in the insurance space, and have been able to, because of the pandemic, basically, scale and offer these brain breaks and or wellness webinars in the virtual space. So the pandemic, you know, one of the many silver linings for us was being able to pivot to the virtual space. We have been doing this now for two plus years. I want to go back and ask you a question because you said something really thought provoking for me, which was that you wanted to serve as kind of a beacon that people could look at you who are perhaps new into their recovery and be able to say, wow, look at Penny. She's an example of what I can become if I commit to this. To me, it sounds incredibly altruistic that you hold yourself up as an example. Do you sometimes find Penny perfect trying to make you perfect in that space? Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's for sure. Oh, it's a kind of a ledge that I walk on. One of my favorite lines from the positive psychology training that I did was all about permission to be human. Uh, I've written several songs that are about permission to be human. <laughs> and my personal self-care practice keeps me very humble and allows me to see when I'm about to teeter on the other side of that ledge. <laughs> <laughs> Over time and many years of practice, I've gotten skilled at recognizing the warning signs. That's wonderful. If you could offer us a snapshot, and I'm going to ask you in a decade, after the first 10 years of recovery, what did that look like? And then what did it look like 20 and so on? I think with each decade comes another layer of acceptance. Acceptance of your addiction or an illness or of you? All of the above. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right. You can't separate the addiction and illness from you. No. Acceptance and comfortability with my vulnerability and my humanness and my much less than perfectness. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I said to somebody recently that I have finally become my own best friend. 
I mean that in my heart. I get teary when I think of that because it's taken me a lifetime. That's a beautiful thought. We're getting to the end and I generally ask one question and the question is if there is a song that resonates with you or in some way describes your life, what is the song and why? But with you, I'm going to have you sing me the song and then you can tell us why. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll speak it rather than sing it because I don't have my harmoniums right here or my car. But the the beginning of the words are, it's a song that I wrote and it's called Sita Ram. The beginning of the verse is turn obstacles into opportunities, turn challenges into change, turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones, turn losses into gains. Same landscape, different eyes. Take the breath, go inside, dive into uncertainty and take a ride. Ah, it's beautiful. When you wrote that, I know most artists write things about themselves, but sometimes for themselves as well. Were you writing for yourself or for others? All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) I actually heard the line turn obstacles into opportunities on a yoga retreat that I was on. And it's actually one of the chants that I've written that is kind of... um, everyone's favorite when I go someplace. And if I've been to that place multiple times, someone will always say, could you do the Sita Ram chant? <laughs> do the Sita Ram chant. So yes, it's for those who are listening and it's for me as a reminder. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you, Penny, for doing this and sharing your story. I know you will inspire many. We will provide the information about Kula for Karma and your new venture in the show notes. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. Feeling like I should. I'm